Hi, this is Brian Lane. Welcome to uh, this skills workshop, Evaluating uh, Surgical Margins During Partial Nephrectomy, hosted by Music. Wanted to start off and uh, give those who might not be familiar with our acronyms uh, and our uh, previous work, what is Music? Well, it's the Michigan Urologic Surgery Improvement Collaborative. Uh, we're a collection of 46 practices all in the state of Michigan. Uh, including more than 260 urologists, so 90% or more of the uh, practicing urologists in the state. We include patient advocates in our activities, uh, and really what our activities are, are focused on quality improvement. And you can see from this uh, image, we have more than 100,000 uh, 100, cases, 57 publications, and, and more than 20 quality improvement efforts, uh, and that's spanning now three different programs. Uh, so how do we do this? Um, the music playbook is pretty simple. We collect data. Uh, we uh, help to draw information from this and then take action. And what we feel is really the most important uh, is we can monitor outcomes within our collaborative uh, and then repeat this process to continue towards quality improvement. So uh, music started uh, with prostate cancer. We also have music rocks, uh, which Turks talks about management of uh, kidney stones. Uh, but Today, um, many of you will be introduced to music kidney. Uh, kidneys are second acronym, so uh, stands for kidney mass, identifying and defining necessary evaluation and therapy uh, for T1 renal masses. So that's music kidney. Uh, we started this uh, a few years back, uh, and really our main goal has been to examine and improve the quality of care for patients diagnosed with T1 renal masses uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, our main goals have been to improve guideline adherence and documentation and to reduce the overall burden of treatment. To date, we've uh, produced two resources for uh, clinics in Michigan. One is a tumor complexity placard uh, to assist uh, in scoring renal scores. Uh, and the second is chest imaging recommendations uh, with placards for the clinic, again, to um, remind urologists regarding what our recommendations are for screening uh, the chest in such patients. Soon we'll have a roadmap for management of T1 renal masses and that shall be out very shortly. So uh, what's the current state of music kidney? We have uh, 17 participating practices, more than 90 urologists. We began data collection back in 2017 uh, and we have more than 3,500 renal mass cases in our registry, uh, which includes more than 1,400 nephrectomies. Uh, during the last several years, these are the publications. Uh, if you do wanna see more of the work that we've done uh, and uh, understand some of the findings we've had, this is really our introductory uh, manuscript. We've also uh, since then uh, put a total of uh, six uh, publications out at this time, looking at uh, things ranging from use of surveillance for T1 renal masses uh, to uh, examination of uh, why benign masses are being removed uh, and can we reduce that uh, as well as uh, guideline uh, compliance. So today uh, our focus uh, will be uh, a skills workshop really focused on avoiding positive surgical margins. Uh, and so during this introduction, uh, Dr. Rogers and I will share with you uh, both what's known nationally uh, as well as what's known within music about surgical margins. We've invited a keynote speaker of Sam Bayani from WashU uh, and you see our panelists uh, below, uh, five surgeons from uh, music, myself, Dr. Rogers, Dr. Weiser, uh, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Smurgeon, and you'll hear more from all of us uh, shortly. 
So uh, the agenda, uh, again, as we started is, what do we know about positive surgical margins? Uh, so uh, let me review briefly uh, what the literature says and how we got to this as a topic for our skills workshop. So uh, margin status is our best immediate surrogate of cancer control. Um, this has been of uh, concern and discussion over the last 20 years or so because uh, there have been significant efforts to spare nephrons uh, to maximize kidney function, but in so doing, it may result in incomplete tumor excision. Um, as most of us are aware, uh, the presence of tumor at an inked margin could represent residual cancer within the patient, uh, which, would, which is associated with increased risk of recurrence. It could also be technical, uh, and so there are um, concerns with how pathologists are evaluating these, uh, the value of a grossly negative surgical margin versus a microscopically negative surgical margin. Uh, and again, there's much literature um, to this space. So to summarize it, um, back in uh, between 2005 and 10, there were a few publications that really uh, emphasized the fact that positive surgical margins are bad. Uh, and so there was a higher associated uh, rate of recurrence in cases with positive surgical margin. Uh, and then there were, at the same time and, and a little later, several publications that said, you know what, I don't we don't know whether positive surgical margins really are that significant. They may really have negligible impact uh, when you take into account uh, tumor histology, tumor size, uh, and other factors. Uh, and then now, uh, more recently, during the last uh, 10 years, there have been several publications that are really indicating that positive surgical margins are associated with inferior oncologic outcomes. Uh, and this includes um, some multivariable analyses that really suggest that Somewhere between uh, 1.3 and, and 2 uh, is probably the hazards for uh, cancer-specific mortality uh, associated with a positive surgical margin. So clearly, there's, there's motivation to avoid them. Uh, well, what about um, the guidelines? So the most recent uh, AUA renal mass guidelines in 2017 uh, wrote these statements. Physicians should prioritize preservation of renal function through efforts to optimize nephron mass preservation and avoidance of prolonged ischemia. So again, don't take too much extra kidney. Uh, but conversely, negative surgical margin should be a priority. The extent of normal parenchyma removed should be determined by the surgeon by surgeon discretion, taking into account the clinical situation, tumor characteristics, including growth pattern and interface with normal tissue. Tumor enucleation should be considered in patients with familial RCC, multifocal disease, or severe CKD. So again, um, some guidance here. Um, because of the importance of uh, obtaining a negative surgical margin. So here's a case as a patient uh, that I've taken care of. Um, he's a 64-year-old gentleman at the time of his surgery. He had multiple comorbidities. He had uh, the 4.8 centimeter posterior upper pole mass you can see here. Uh, and I took him to surgery for a robotic partial nephrectomy. Um, at his final pathology, uh, he was found to have clear cell grade four. Um, it was a four centimeter tumor and there was a microscopic positive margin. Um, from my operative note, some factors uh, that would talk about this case um, and help us understand. So it took about, and this, these are quotes from my operative note, it took about two and a half hours to dissect through all the fat, which was adherent to the kidney obscuring our views of the tumor. There was arterial bleeding. So a second bulldog clamp was placed on the main artery. Uh, collecting system was entered. 
Um, this was a, a more complex case, as, as you can see, it took me 30 minutes of warm ischemia. Uh, and I did document in uh, my note, the gross surgical margin appeared free of tumor throughout and electrocautery had been used to cauterize the entire base of the resected tumor. Uh, nevertheless, um, when the patient was seen in follow-up, uh, based on his, um, my initial discussion with him was, well, gee, we can uh, reoperate on you, uh, or we can watch you closely, and we we decided to follow him closely with a about a three-month post-op scan. Uh, so he had his his initial CT abdomen pelvis uh, four months post-op, and you can see these two nodules. Um, just above and lateral to the uh, what you can sort of see of the liver here in this view. Um, he then had a bone scan and a CT thorax, which were negative, and he was started on systemic therapy. Um, seven months post-op, he had uh, progressive metastatic disease, both in the abdomen and the pelvis. Uh, and by 12 months post-op, he had a malignant bowel obstruction, underwent an X-lap, and he passed away 18 months later. So, um, you know, do positive surgical margins matter? You know, hard to know in this case uh, whether this patient would have had rapid progression of disease uh, if he had a negative margin, uh, but certainly these are the type of nightmares that uh, we're trying to avoid. So uh, how common are positive margins? Uh, well, in the literature, if we look back uh, at uh, published studies, it really ranges anywhere from 1.8 to 18%, so a pretty wide range, uh, but no one's publishing zero. Uh, and again, about 2% is about as low as we're seeing. Uh, and what about predictors? So again, if we look back at uh, these studies and, uh, and these various authors have been looking at what are the, what are the influencers? And so uh, higher comorbidity, increased age apparently, uh, upper pole location, higher nephrometry score um, are the tumor factors and then the surgical factors uh, suggests that lower volume centers, higher blood loss, uh, and performing uh, a simple enucleation or resection rather than a nuclear resection uh, could come uh, contribute to positive surgeon, surgical margins. So what do we do with these patients? I kind of mentioned uh, in the example I gave, uh, how do you manage them? Uh, so I got a positive surg surgical margin, what should I do? Um, in patients, so this is literature-based. So in patients who have been reoperated on, only 7% had viable cancer. Um, so that's inf important information for our patients. You know, if we do a second immediate operation, there's a 93% chance there will not be any cancer detectable. Um, in addition, greater than 90% of patients with a positive surgical margin do not recur. Uh, and so close monitoring is most commonly what uh, is mentioned uh, and pursued. Uh, if there is radiographic progression, you can either do ablation or do salvage surgery. So there are options. Um, and I do think it's uh, very important, the distinction between a gross positive surgical margin and a microscopic positive surgical margin. Um, if you see cancer, um, you know, it's important to look closely and clear that bed uh, and then re-resect until you're confident that a negative surgical margin's uh, achieved. So uh, to summarize, most positive surgical margins can be managed with close monitoring rather than with salvage procedures. And how can we avoid them? Well, uh, I think some steps that we'll talk about here and then again, talk more uh, throughout the workshop, um, high quality imaging uh, is important so you can see well uh, what you're dealing with. Uh, intraoperative ultrasound is imperative. Um, you can cut along uh, the border 
with the scissors curved away from the tumor uh, rather than poking into the tumor. Um, again, I think it's rather important to have close inspection uh, during resection and after. Um, it's pretty common in my practice to have to course correct. Uh, and you know, if you get too close in one section or you do cut into the tumor, you know, go, go wide and go deeper at that area. Uh, minimize handling of the tumor. Uh, consider using a blunt grasper. Uh, endophytic cystic or larger tumors in particular are the ones uh, that uh, can bring more pause or more concern for surgical margins. And so cut wider and deeper in these patients. Uh, and then consider focal and nuclear resection. Um, so once you're at your deepest point, that's where I tend to uh, be closer uh, right on the surgical capsule, on the, on the tumor capsule uh, to help preserve the hilar structures. So uh, in summary, uh, best management for positive surgical margins is to avoid them. And so salute everyone who's on the call today and for our participants to really help so we can all learn together about how best to do this. Um, I'd also mention that selection, preparation, and meticulous technique can help avoid positive surgical margins. You know, if you never operate on the patient, uh, you won't get a positive surgical margin. If you do a radical nephrectomy, you're far less likely to get a surgical margin as well. Uh, but again, I, the, the point of this whole um, endeavor is to figure out what is the best thing in each scenario for each patient. So be vigilant about positive surgical margins, but don't be neurotic. So I wanna turn it over to Craig Rogers uh, and Craig will fill us in now on how we've been doing within music. Thank you, Dr. Lane, for a great overview uh, of positive margins and their significance. Um, I'm gonna now hone in on uh, positive margins specifically to music and what we're seeing uh, in the music collaborative. Um, so how common are positive margins in music? Well, um, we looked at this in part of a, as part of a bigger picture of looking at um, for kidney notes, which is notable outcomes and trackable events after surgery. So trying to identify the ideal partial nephrectomy pathway and uh, what we'd like to achieve in that in terms of our outcomes. And what we looked at and our goals were achieving a low blood loss, a short warm ischemia time, uh, minimizing margins, so negative margins whenever possible, uh, a short length of stay, avoiding readmissions, and trying to preserve renal function. And in uh, looking at that, um, there's more data to come on the renal uh, function preservation and trying to decide how we're gonna define that. And also for uh, blood loss, we're thinking that it's more clinically significant looking at transfusion rates. Um, but you see positive or achieving a negative surgical margin is just one of those goals that we're seeking. And that's our emphasis for the skills workshop today. So within music, um, what we're seeing in each of these areas, each of these goals, um, the, this is where we fall out in music and our, our rates of success in those areas. Um, so specifically for positive surgical margins, we're seeing a rate in music of 6.8%. So if you looked at, at that in a bigger context nationwide in published data, um, what we're seeing is music in blue relative to other publications out there in terms of rates of positive margin. So it's respectable, but definitely we can move the needle and improve. Um, so then if you look at variation by practice within uh, music, we also see variation and that variation can range on the left from one, just over 1% to just under 
6% or just under 22%, sorry, with an average again of 6.8%. So variability, opportunity to improve. Um, and we see that variability in all other aspects of the notes pathway of whether it's margins on the far left, length of stay, blood loss, ischemia time, ED uh, visits and readmissions. And also that there are no clear sort of winners or losers by practice, that there are opportunities for each practice to improve in areas. Um, and if you look at volume of practice with partial nephrectomy and uh, margin, association with margin, we're seeing high volume practices would be a bigger dot, lower volume practice would be a smaller dot. So we're seeing some high volume practices that are below the average, some higher volume practices that are at or above, um, but variability across. And uh, so then what predicts positive margin? So in the published data, the, there's a list here of different patient factors, tumor factors, and surgical factors that have been shown to predict margins. But if you look in the uh, in music in terms of what's predicting, what we're seeing is BMI, a higher BMI, and endophytic tumors, especially completely endophytic tumors, tumors that would be a, an E3 on a renal nephrometry scale. That is what is predicting margins within the music collaborative, whereas the others have not uh, shown significance at, at this point. Not that they're not important, they're absolutely important, these are just areas, and, and it would make sense that with a deeper tumor, uh, getting a margin at the base can be more challenging. And with a higher BMI, especially if there's toxic fat or sticky fat around the tumor, that can be more of a challenge. Um, so we're gonna have a discussion about uh, how we can avoid positive margins. And uh, in our discussion and Q&A, we'll talk about tracking and sharing our data uh, to look for ways to improve how we can better select our patients um, to avoid margins and how, particularly in a skills workshop, how we can improve our technique uh, surgically to avoid positive margins. And uh, there are opportunities for video review uh, for our own videos and reviewing uh, videos on the music library. Um, so with that, thank you for your time. So here we are. I want to remind all the attendees that the Q&A tab is the right place to look uh, over in uh, Hopin and put questions in there and then we'll get to those. Um, why don't I uh, start off our Q&A session asking some people who haven't had a look at notes yet or these presentations and get their initial thoughts. Why don't we start? Uh, Jeremy Johnson, what do you, what do you think uh, with these presentations? Is there something surprising or what are your initial thoughts here? No, I don't think so. I mean, I would say that the the, the bigger the patient, the harder it is. I would say toxic fat is the, the next thing that seems to be the hardest. And then obviously tumor complexity, posterior upper pole seems to be the hardest for me, I guess. Um, I don't know what other people think, but, um, and obviously the deeper they are, the, the more likely it is you're gonna get into it. And so, um, none of that really surprises me. I was, I mean, I think it's kind of encouraging to see the pooled data from different, um, you know, practices, whether it be community-based or, um, 
uh, academic being music compared to national debt is relatively in the middle of the, <clears throat> the bell curve. So. Great. Uh, uh, Dr. Weiser alone, what, what do you think? I think this is your first time maybe seeing notes and seeing positive surgical margin rates in Michigan. What, what are your initial thoughts? I mean, it's reassuring that um, we are kind of at the published literature standard, but I, I certainly think there are a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for improvement given the variability, and it doesn't come as any surprise to me that you know BMI, sticky fat, and depth of tumor <clears throat> are some of the variables that increase the risk, and certainly we saw some of that when we published early, early on with some of our institutional data on positive surgical margins and outcomes with partial nephrectomy. <clears throat> um, you know, the one thing I keep thinking about is, you know, especially for those deep tumors, I think one of the challenges that we all face when we're doing that one is exposure and how do you optimize exposure before you're doing um, the excisional portion of the surgery. And two is, and I think you mentioned this, um, Brian, is that you have to be willing to adjust, but you also have to be willing to commit to incising deep into the kidney if you actually need to. And I think that's sometimes where we often get a little bit of cold feet because you go, oh man, I'm getting into the collecting system, or that's a fairly large vessel there that, but I, I, I think that's really critical um, in order to make sure that you achieve the negative margin that you commit to needing to do the reconstruction if you want to have the oncologic outcome that you intend. Yeah. Dr. Bayani, I'm going to put you on the spot. We have our first question in there. Uh, is there a situation in which you would recommend a completion nephrectomy instead of observation for a positive surgical margin? You know, I think high grade gross positive margin is one that maybe you um, you might want to reconsider. Um, we also have to consider depth of tumor. Obviously, more complex tumors have a greater depth, larger, higher grade, more likely to have sinus fat invasion, more likely to have uh, unrecognized vascular involvement. I think that's different than a small exophytic one and a half centimeter mass that you might have cauterized the base on. So um, it still comes down to oncologic principles, right? Uh, uh, worse cancers, worse location, nephrectomy. Dr. Rogers, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I agree. I think it's important also you counsel your patients. When you have a bigger, deeper tumor where there may be some intraoperative findings, if it's invading critical structures, you have to, that patient has to be aware that you're going to err on the side of caution if necessary. That, you know, out of all those notes deviations, margins is one, preserving renal function was another. Sometimes those are at odds with one another, right? If you have to do the right thing to get a margin, which means taking the kidney, that may compromise more renal function, but ultimately that may be the right thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'll share, I just, a couple months ago, I had a patient and uh, that exact scenario happened. And uh, I reviewed the pathology with my uh, pathologist and they were like, look, it's, it looks T3. It's, you know, invading collecting system right at the area where the margin is. I had a grossly negative surgical margin, but it was grade four 
uh, renal cell with T3A. And so we had that discussion and felt that the best move was to do it. But yeah, I'd say grade four would do it, T3 would do it. And then the other thing that, um, again, we'll probably touch on later is I really fundamentally believe you need a grossly negative surgical margin. So a microscopic that you heard about after the fact is one thing, but um, I record all my videos. Uh, you know, you can always go back and look later if if you're if you're unsure and unclear. But if it looks like there's tumor left, I think that one's got to go. I uh, asked for more questions in the chat as well, uh, Dr. Smurgeon, uh, Tell me your thoughts on uh, at this point about. Uh, what's what's the trade-off? How do you how do you pick? Do you go deeper, or do you take out the kidney, or do you let it be? What? How do you know when you've done enough is enough? Yeah, I, I like to keep a margin on it. So definitely want to have a layer of normal tissue there. I probably err on the side of going deeper, um, sacrificing some kidney function and taking time to sew up the base of the tumor if you get into collecting system, uh, rather than end up with a positive surgical margin. Great. Um, another uh, related type of question is, how many times uh, do you all feel you've uh, been in the operating room and you're intending a partial nephrectomy and um, something inside you is saying this needs to be a radical? I mean, is this one or two time in, in your experience or is there, uh, you know, is this a, a common or, or more common thought process that, that maybe it's time to switch gears? Craig, you maybe have the most challenging practice amongst us, maybe. Tell, tell us about that. I'm just thinking back a, a paper we were involved in um, where it was a multi-institutional study. It was called the Batacuti um, uh, Collaborative, where you had a multi-institutional group where it was prospective. So you were committed. You had to decide, is this a radical or a partial? So you couldn't change your mind. It wasn't an after-the-fact retrospective thing. And it looked at how often was a partial actually done when it was boarded as a partial. And the conversion rate in that was 4%. Now that may just be that you, you tackle a big tumor, it's five, six centimeters, you board it as a partial, and then you decide interop that it's a radical. That's the appropriate, maybe the appropriate thing to do. But so it wasn't like less than 1%, it actually happens, you know, and, and that may be good decision-making. Uh, it was hard to tell if these were intraoperative bleeding, et cetera. Um, you know, we couldn't deep dive into it. But anyway, that's what the number was in that study. Maybe Dr. Bayani, maybe uh, I'd, I'd ask your impression. You know, I, I think when I counsel folks, I have three thoughts in mind. This is either a standard partial nephrectomy, and I know what my complication rates and my conversion rate is about zero. Um, it's, you know, a more challenging one. And I, and I might tell them, you know, there's a two or 3% chance that we might convert, but I still feel it's about a zero, but there's other patients who I truly going into surgery, uh, am undecided about whether it's a partial or a radical. Um, and my consent form usually says partial versus radical. And I quote some number in my note that says, you know, 20% chance of conversion. What's your, what's your sense in this? You know, do we have a really good idea? Uh, for how many patients need to convert? Do we know ahead of time? You know, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I still kind of go with nephrometry score. And if it's higher, I say higher chance of conversion. Now, interestingly, I don't think that deep tumor reconstruction is, is really as much of a factor as higher nephrometry 
maybe larger, higher grade. There might be other reasons. You're into the vasculature. You, um, you know, I, I, I think that after you get past a point, the reconstruction doesn't bother you as much as the cancer. And, and so I, I, I still think about it in terms of complexity and I say high complexity tumors have a higher chance of, of conversion. I don't give them an exact statistic, but I, you know, most of them with high complexity tumors understand that, um, that, that there's a significant chance. Now, what is that? Is that 20%, 30%, 40%? I, I don't know. Sometimes people ask, but I, I go by the anatomical characteristics. Now, I want to put a caveat on that, that I think there are patient factors as well. Of course, you know, uh, uh, upper pole, poor visualization, a lot of perinephric fat, um, reoperative case, which may uh, cause you to say very high chance. So I, I've come to the conclusion, and this is different from my practice five, 10 years ago, that if it looks like tumors in a vessel, um, and it's going to be T3 disease. I used to think, oh, well, that's fine. I can sew up that segmental vein and so, so be it. But I think for an elective partial nephrectomy, that probably means it needs to be a radical. Uh, if it's a solitary kidney, that's another story. Um, but I'd say gross tumor in a vessel. Dr. Weiser, what do you th think on that one? Is that an absolute? I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, from a biologic standpoint, point, if you have a high grade T3 tumor, then you know, you, your risk is metastatic disease, but certainly you don't want to be dealing with metastatic disease and a terrible local recurrence, which I think we've all experienced before. I, I think, like you said, the um, non-elective partial, I mean, I had one very recently where my imaging really wasn't that old. It was less than two months old and it was deep. Um, and then when I got in there, uh, um, you know, there was a fairly prominent tumor thrombus in a patient with a creatinine of 2.8 at baseline. And, you know, there were two times when I was cutting it out and trying to put it back together that I really wanted to just take the kidney out. But I felt like I didn't have a lot of options for this relatively young guy, to, but to give him a chance. Right. And I, and I think you need to know the clinical scenario. You know, I'm, I'm aware of other times there's been intraoperative bleeding and I've become aware that people have done radical nephrectomies for that. And I think, oof, you know, solitary kidney bleeding, you got to find a way to stop that without taking out the kidney. But uh, if you got two kidneys, a different story. Couple questions here. Let's go, uh, Jeremy Johnson first. How about this one? How important is the frozen section in your schema? Uh, I was just going to say, I've had a couple uh, cases over the past year where I've actually taken um, a frozen section from the deep margin, completed the partial, thought everything was fine. In an elective partial case, you know, no uh, chronic kidney disease or anything, and it was positive. <clears throat> I ended up taking the kidney out, and they ended up having T3 disease for both of them. So I think that that's a reasonable thing to do, even for a smaller tumor. I mean, if they're deeper, um, obviously they're more aggressive and if they're T3 and I don't think a radicals a bad idea it's just that it's kind of a bummer to finish the case and then have to take it um, so yeah I, I do I don't routinely send it but if it's a deeper cancer uh, then I definitely do even if it looks okay just to make sure that there's nothing um, microscopically that they can as a pathologist tell you but I, I've done it Dr. Samurgeon, maybe give me your thoughts on that. And I'm going to give you the next question too. 
Uh, your thoughts on increased surgical margin risk with off-clamp versus on-clamp partial? I don't do a lot of off-clamp partials. I, I like to have a bloodless field so I can make sure that everything looks like it's, you know, clean at the margin um, so you can really tell. And um, so, you know, I, I think probably an on-clamp partial is the best way to go, especially if you're concerned about a deep tumor or something that has a risk of having a positive margin in the first place. What about frozen sections? Frozen sections, I don't use routinely. Um, I have in a couple of cases, especially when something just doesn't seem like it's well encapsulated or going into sinus fat, you know, one of those scenarios. Um, I did, I'm thinking of a case that I did actually pretty recently that looked like there was macroscopic invasion into sinus fat and I cut across part of it, sent it as a margin and they confirmed that it was all tumors and then ended up taking out the whole kidney. I, I've gotten almost completely away from frozen section, especially with increased use of biopsy. Um, you know, I think if I'm doing a six and a half centimeter tumor and I'm about to do a radical on it, unless it's an oncocytoma, I might biopsy that thing early on in the case. Um, if I see some enlarged lymph nodes, I may send those early in the case. Uh, but frozen section of the base, I rarely do. Um, and with respect to on-clamp versus off-clamp, I think you got to see. Um, I've done a fair number of off-clamp partials, but it tends to be because there's a small feeder vessel going into the tumor, and I'll control that first, and then I'll nucleate or take the tumor uh, at that point. But I, I'm not a fan of, of off-clamp for that reason. Um, at that point, I think we've got uh, time here. We do have another question and answer right after, unless, Craig, if you have one last comment, go right ahead. No, I, if you're okay with it, I'll, I'd love to have the privilege to introduce our keynote speaker. It, it really is an honor to have Dr. Sam Bayani, uh, professor and chair of urology at Washington University School of Medicine with us today. He's a pioneer, an expert in kidney surgery, and uh, I really look forward to learning from him. So uh, with that, we'll turn it over to Dr. Bayani. Thanks, Dr. Rogers, and thanks everybody for having me today. Uh, it's exciting to present to this group and talk about one of the items which really brings some of us some anxiety, which are positive margins with partial nephrectomy. Uh, and, um, and I'm really looking forward to the videos and the Q&A uh, as this program goes on. Uh, what are some of the key data? I know we've reviewed some of it already, but most series show a positive margin rate of about one to 10%. It, it's quite a broad range in modern scientific series. And maybe that's related to the types of tumors that, uh, that we're cutting out. Maybe it's related to uh, experience. Maybe it's related to learning curve or maybe related to pathology. But generally speaking, the positive surgical margin rate is low and mirrors that of open surgery. I point out three studies on this slide, one from Mayo and one from France and one from China, not because of the positive margin rate in and of itself, but really some of the conclusions they made from some of these studies. Uh, Ayers et al. reported uh, no real effect on positive margin with trainees. And I equate trainees, although with residents, I also equate that to being early in the learning curve. So uh, maybe any physicians early in the learning curve uh, might conclude or might infer that their positive margin rate would similarly be low. Um, uh, the, uh, the group from France uh, showed a 5 to 11% positive margin rate, but no effect, no difference with 
Hyler control or or uh, or lack of Hyler control or an off clamp or on clamp partial it didn't seem to make much of a difference. And a group from China, Dong et al., reported about a 2.1% positive margin rate with the nucleation. So all of these are within the range. And I only bring up those three studies because they're addressing things that are beyond the positive margin, but certain variables related to the positive margin or unrelated, as they might say in their series. What about the long-term effect of positive margins? We reported at a mean follow-up of 77 months that positive surgical margins were associated with a much higher risk of recurrence. But those recurrences were not all local. Those, some of those recurrences were regional or, um, or uh, distant. Uh, on the other hand, um, a multi-center U.S. study by Rothberg et al. showed about a 5% positive margin rate with no association with worse oncologic outcomes that were traceable to that margin rate, but the prognosis rather was dependent on stage, whether it was a T1A, T1B, T2, or T3 lesion. So, you know, some of these uh, uh, studies uh, have been debated and some of them have been talked about, and I kind of want to give you my take on some of these conclusions. Um, my take on these conclusions. The first one is, does experience matter? And although the previous study was by trainees, and if we look back at some of the early studies that were done by Dr. Rogers or Dr. Kauk or Dr. Stifelman, or even myself, um, the positive margin rate has stayed about the same. But does experience matter? I have to think it does. Um, I have to think that maybe we're not parsing that out in the literature. Maybe the learning curve is uh, fairly rapid. But I do think that as time goes on, uh, experience matters in uh, getting a negative margin. Now, maybe the difference is that with experience, you're also willing to do uh, larger tumors, more complicated tumors. So maybe that also affects uh, reportability in a retrospective fashion. Does clamping help? Uh, despite the study on the previous slide, I subjectively believe that seeing the lesion and seeing the normal kidney, that interface between them does help. I like to see that brownish hue of the normal kidney while the kidney is clamped in a bloodless field. So I think that does matter, even though it didn't parse out on some of these studies. And does enucleation matter? Well, it's hard for me to know what really is the definition of enucleation. Although there are a lot of definitions in the literature, um, there's enucleation, enucleoresection, a regular partial nephrectomy, and uh, are you on the capsule? Are you not on the capsule? Um, and, and it's hard for me to parse that out technically unless we actually reviewed a video of what it means to enucleate a tumor exactly for every single case. And I wonder, if some of these studies were either underpowered or not rigorous enough, or perhaps too short follow-up to really show uh, the, the effect of positive margin from a prevention standpoint, from a predictability standpoint, and from a long-term oncological outcome uh, uh, standpoint. So my bias, my bias as a surgeon, my bias as, a, um, as someone who does these procedures is I prefer a traditional partial, a few millimeters of margin. I wanna respect those oncologic principles. And frankly, I do like an arterial clamp and operating in a bloodless field to see that margin. Now, there can always be a little bit of venous ooze, but I like the ability 
to visually look at the margin as we're working. And when I do open partial nephrectomies, uh, it's the same thing. I like to have um, the cut face of the kidney be readily apparent and at least be able to confidently say that grossly we have a negative margin. Of course, we can always look at the specimen as well. Um, but that is my bias despite these studies. I do think that there are things that matter, such as learning curve, such as clamping, such as your surgical technique of, of wanting to have a few millimeters margin versus an enucleation. Uh, when I think about the key technical points of robotic partial nephrectomy and achieving a negative margin, I think there's both a preoperative and an intraoperative component to these technical points. A good quality scan, we always say that. Um, I do think multiple phases are important to distinguish the mass from normal renal parenchyma, um, particularly in a cortical medullary phase of a scan, you may not see the vague aspect of the deep margin of the mass. Why is that important? Because one of the critical things on the scan is the proximity to sinus fat in the collecting system. Obviously, if it's within a millimeter, two or three of the sinus fat, you know you've achieved your margin technically by getting into that sinus fat. You know if it's a millimeter or two from the collecting system that you can use that collecting system as a geographic marker when you cut out the tumor. So I, I like the idea of a good scan and showing where the mass is in relation to other geographies within the kidney, the, the sinus fat, collecting system, maybe even sometimes hyalur vessels. Uh, consider an ultrasound preoperatively if it is a totally endophytic tumor and very small. Can you even see it? Um, there's been more than one patient referred to me where a partial nephrectomy was performed and uh, the pathology came back normal renal parenchyma because uh, the mass was missed. Um, and uh, it can happen. And I'm going to show you a video later of a totally endophytic tumor that results in a positive margin. And I'll leave that as a teaser as we, um, as, as we talk. The other preoperative issue is really assessment of the vasculature. I talked in the last slide about the importance of a bloodless field when we operate and the importance of being able to see the cut margin. So hand in hand with that is really assessment of the vasculature, making sure you found all the arteries and even consider Firefly if you wanna do a partial um, occlusion or a, or a, or a um, selective clamp as we call it. So uh, knowing where those vessels are, I think is important preoperatively. Now, of course, a scan could always miss a vessel, um, but nevertheless, I think it's important. One thing I didn't put on here preoperatively that goes along with assessing the vasculature is actually assessing your bulldogs. These robotic bulldogs and even open ones lose their tensile strength. They lose their closing force over time. Um, and uh, some people put two bulldogs on the artery. Uh, sometimes these are tested and they can be tested by the companies that make these bulldogs, but certainly they lose their closure uh, tightness over time. And I think it's important to regularly assess that in relation to your margin. Uh, you, if, if your goal is to have a bloodless field, of course you have to have a clamp that clamps. What about intraoperatively? Intraoperatively is uh, a lot of decision-making really for, uh, 
for assessment of your margin. Uh, ultrasound is absolutely critical. Dr. Rogers wrote one of the first papers on robotic ultrasound, and we are still using wonderful robotic probes that drop in the body. And those are really what most individuals doing partial nephrectomy are using. Although you can use a laparoscopic probe or maybe get by on an exophytic tumor without ultrasounding, I, I think those are shortcuts. And I think most uh, centers have adopted robotic ultrasound. Uh, I've used the Aloka, I've used the BK, um, but uh, they both are, are fine. It's important to use that ultrasound not only for tumor identification, but also for depth of the margin and directionality. What I mean by directionality is, are you going to cut down like a cylinder? Are you going to cut like a cone? Um, the the uh, direction of your cut I think can be determined by swiveling the ultrasound when you mark out the margin. So I do think that ultrasound is critical. I do also wanna point out that sometimes ultrasound does not show you a clear, clear margin if there's some vagueness in the, um, in the uh, depth of the tumor. And that's where correlation with the CAT scan I think is critically important. I use robotic ultrasound on every single case I do, absolutely critical for a negative margin in my opinion. We've talked a lot about bloodless field. Uh, my, my second point there, uh, I just feel like seeing that margin is important. Do I do some off-clamp cases? Sure, I do once in a while. Uh, I, I think that most uh, experienced surgeons are able to clamp for a few minutes and get the tumor out with the negative margin and still not sacrifice long, warm ischemia. Uh, what about good assistance? I think good assistance is really critical to uh, help uh, uh, give you counter tension as you cut out the tumor. Uh, typically, the assistant with a suction device is able not only to suck some of the venous blood at the margin, but also to push the renal parenchyma away and uh, allow the tumor to come up like a flap or, or a trap door. It, it really is an active part of the operation. And I can show a video later of good assistance and bad assistance in that um, endeavor. Cutting with scissors away from the lesion. And what I mean by that is the scissors have a regular curve, just like any Mayo or Metzenbaum scissors that we use open, the robotic scissors are the same. I like when cutting into the kidney to curve with, um, with the curve of the scissors and curve away from the tumor. That allows one not to uh, skive into the mass. It allows you to kind of uh, stay that margin away that you've determined with intraoperative ultrasound. And most of the surgeons that I see doing this regularly, most of their initial cuts are with the scissors curved away from the tumor. And lastly, I also find that um, sometimes surgeons worry about cutting too deep. They worry that, oh, it's going to be difficult to reconstruct. I'm going to get in the collecting system. I'm going to get in the sinus fat. But frankly, uh, the ability to suture those things is, is very typical in robotic surgery, as most of us know. And I don't think that um, uh, the reconstruction is as challenging unless you're in the renal hilum. So I, I think it's important to cut those extra few millimeters if you have any doubt. And I will show you a case later where I didn't cut those few millimeters and I think I should have. So um, that's a little teaser uh, for my next slide, which is 
There are going to be some short video clips, which I will show a little later in the session, but I'm really honored to take some Q&A now uh, as we look forward to those uh, clips as, as they come in the next hour. Thank you again for having me and happy to take any questions. Uh, and thinking through uh, some of your talks uh, and some of your points in your talk, which I think we will uh, touch base on. We have a, a first question here that already came in. Uh, what about a biopsy? Uh, does the histology from the biopsy available prior to surgery help with any of the intraoperative decision-making? Maybe Dr. Bayani, you want to comment on this? A, a preoperative biopsy. Um, I, I don't know if it's very, it might be helpful in deciding to operate. I don't know if it helps me in, in a margin unless we're really high grade and I really want to get a many, many millimeters away. So I, I don't know if it would help me in most cases technically, although completely support if the patient wants to know in advance if it's a renal cell to get a biopsy. Great. Um, anyone else have things to comment on initially uh, from Dr. Bayani's talk? Well, just to answer that question, I mean, I think uh, if you do get a biopsy, you know, which I think a lot of us routinely for these smaller masses do, you know, if you have an oncocytic neoplasm or chromophobe, that I'm more inclined to enucleate on those um, than, you know, get a wide margin. So I do think it it, it can help you somewhat in terms of a decision, in terms of a wide excision, and kind of like what Dr. Bayani was saying in terms of coning down versus uh, different shapes in terms of how you get into it. Um, that can be more helpful than the high-grade tumor where you know you're going to be wider. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that um, for me, biopsy is helpful, uh, especially in terms of cases um, you know, I can think of tuber sclerosis patients where if you know it's an AML versus an RCC, I know I can enucleate and I could care less about a margin uh, versus if it, if, you know, the radiologist was pretty noncommittal and thought it might be an RCC. Um, there's actually a paper I, I recall from University of Indiana where they were talking about the likelihood of a pseudocapsule based on the pathology. Um, and actually, it's pretty interesting because uh, the lower risk tumors, the chromophobes and the oncocytomas sometimes don't have uh, the pseudocapsule, but those are the ones that we also don't have the oncologic risk uh, versus the clear cell, uh, renal cell almost always has a good pseudocapsule. Um, so kind of an interesting thing on, on both sides there. Um, maybe let's use that as a segue into this question uh, that says, can you comment, uh, and uh, Dr. Smirgen maybe address this one, or if you want to address anything we just said as well, can you comment on how likely a positive margin is real when you clearly see the tumor edge, you're in a good plane, but the pathologist sees tumor at the edge, is it just a discrepancy? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things I think that's very important is whether it's grossly positive or if it's a microscopic positive margin. I think there is a lot of manipulation also as you're getting the tumor out, you know, putting it in a bag, getting it out of the body. There's possibility that, uh, you know, the, the capsule ruptures and that might be called a positive margin. Um, you know, I think if you had a good feel, a good bloodless uh, field and are able to see well and know that you don't have um, 
you know, macroscopic positive margin, you can feel fairly assured, even if it's if it's microscopic and called by the pathologist, that that's something that could be watched. Great. Uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, do you routinely use argon or cautery on the resection bed? Do you think that has any impact on margin status? I don't. I mean, I think that if... Uh, you know, you can clearly see the base of the tumor that you take out and you're confident and you're in the, that there's nothing left macroscopically. I don't routinely go through and just burn the, the edges, especially if it's a super deep tumor down by the collecting system or any other larger vessels. I don't want to cauterize those. I'd rather just sew them up, um, but I don't routinely use argon. I, I remember back in the open partial nephrectomy days, we used to argon the entire base um, I no longer do it either. And I, my comment would be, if you see anything in the base that you are concerned about, cut it out. Um, if there's, you know, anything that's a question, you know, gee, is that yellow because it's clear cell or is it yellow because it's sinus fat, you know, take it out until you're confident. Uh, and, and I agree. Anyone else have comments on cautery? Yeah, Brian, it may be a comment and a question. Um, I don't cauterize while I'm excising because I don't know if others have seen this, but if you're going along and you hit cautery and it burns the corta, you may not even be burning the tumor, but it looks like a positive margin. You, you end up with this whitish yellowish thing that now you're like, oh my gosh, is that tumor? So it's much easier to see if you just cut it out cold. And then once the tumor's out, I suppose if you want to burn the edge or something, you could, but I try not, I try to cut cold to see. That's interesting. You know, I, I agree with you, Craig, uh, but I actually do cut with a little cautery and that's because they usually give me the scissors on the 10th use. And so <laughs> if I cut cold, I, I'd still be cutting. So I, I'm with you. I get it. But in my hospital, I, I'm that 10th guy always. So I use a little cautery. Sam, can I ask a follow up on that? I, it took me a while to figure this out, but, you know, there's different numbers on the cautery setting. Uh, and there's also cut and coag. Do you do anything to turn it down so you don't get a lot of char or it doesn't matter? I, I, I it doesn't matter. At the, at the point where they're giving me the 10th one, I, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I, I, like I admit one. the capsule is the hardest, right? I'll burn through the capsule and try to get through that. And then to Sam's point in his talk, I really liked how he talked about cutting deep and not being afraid to cut too deep. If you know on imaging, it goes to the collecting system, then if you're not looking into the collecting system, you haven't cut deep enough. Like that's how you know you got it. And also those sinus tumors that go deep into the sinus to be able to cut all the way through the cortex to the medulla, where now you can mobilize that tumor and move it around and leave fat on top and lift it up so you can see that sinus plane but you can't get that if you're just trying to like trap door a deep sinus tumor. You got to really mobilize it and cut deep. Right. I think the videos are going to speak to this well. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Weiser, maybe this sounds like a similar question, but Dr. Uh, Dave Kaminsky is asking, does use of cautery or argon intra-op affect your likelihood to observe versus bringing the patient back for completion nephrectomy if you see a positive surgical margin? I mean, I guess you're making the assumption that if you use argon, that you're getting more margin out of that. I don't, I mean, that's making an assumption that, you know, heat kills the tumor, which, you know, we know from ablations that, yes, that's the case, but, you know, are you generating enough 
energy from an argon or a peripheral cautery to result in tumor kill. I personally wouldn't rely on that. You know, I think it's more important as, um, you know, Craig and Sam have said, you know, try to cut out the two, cut out the tumor cold, use cautery sparingly as you're resecting. And if you want to cauterize the cortex, I never cauterize the sinus or any large vessel or near the collecting system. Cause I want to be able to have decent tissue to be able to close um, and know that it's going to close and I'm not going to have a leak of urine or whatever. So this might be a lead in cause I've, I've seen some of the videos, but um, probably a technical comment that might be relevant. So if you've got a bleeder going, let's say you've only clamped the artery and you have a venous ooze going, um, you know, I, I've come to the realization now you could take the scissor out and you could put a needle driver in and you can control that one big pesky bleeder and then keep cutting is an option versus cauterizing it. Um, so there are options. There's another option. You can put a clip on that pesky bleeder so that you can get your, your visualization again. So I think, you know, the more of these cases you do, the more you realize you don't have to keep that scissor in there and cauterize everything. Um, but again, different people manage things differently. Um, so uh, I'll be interested to see your guys' comments uh, as we see the video and, and the technique as we do that. Um, we got another question here from the feed. Um, how does surveillance schema change if your patient has a positive surgical margin? What would you do different? Maybe I'll ask Dr. Rogers. I don't think I asked you anything yet. Go ahead. Yeah, so if I have a focal microscopic positive margin, uh, I'm just going to tighten up the surveillance more, so more frequent and a longer duration. So instead of what I would usually do is once a year for about three years, I might do it every six months and extend it out more to like five years, more like a radical patient. So just tighten it up a bit. There you go. So I think I'm going to transition us into the videos. We have four of them. And so for all the audience, again, I'll try to do the best I can getting your comments and questions in and to panelists while we show them. Um, the first video will be uh, Dr. Len Weiser. Uh, we'll have three to follow. Um, but again, if you put your questions in there and comments, we'll do that. And then panelists will be able to uh, comment as well while the videos are going. So I think we'll, we'll start rolling into that section now. Great. Am I, I am live. So, <clears throat> okay, well, thank you for allowing me to uh, participate in this. Um, so um, I wanna start by saying, don't judge me, 82 uh, year old um, with a actually bilateral renal masses that I had a lot of discussion with him and his cardiologist um, uh, for a large mass with um, somewhat chronic kidney disease. And you can see some of the um, images here from that uh, right side. I did a robotic assisted retroperitoneal partial, clamped the renal artery, warm ischemia time was 22 minutes and the EBL was relatively low. <clears throat> you got discharged in post-operative day three predominantly for you know, uh, management by his cardiologist for um, some tachycardia after surgery. And fortunately, it came back at papillary RCC. So here you can see us putting on the bulldog clamp in the sea of fat. And 
there is the tumor. I did do an ultrasound and I tend to score it um, at least in some areas so that I, I can, I don't necessarily score around the entire tumor, but kind of where I'm going to start after I, you know, to do the ultrasound. And then it's, it's, it's like, a, um, you know, watching a family movie, right? Sometimes you get anxious about watching your own video. So um, you can see that I have some bleeding here and you can also see here, I'm doing some spot welding at the time. Um, and a lot of times what I try to do is get my assistant, if I can, if there's one area that's bleeding to uh, try and put some pressure on it. Um, I'm trying to find an enucleation plane here. Uh, what I tend to do is once I see what I think is the base of the tumor, um, start to widen out my area. And if I'm getting into trouble in one spot, which you can see I clearly am getting into a little bit of trouble here, then I'll try to go to a different area to see if I can make some progress. I'm using the third arm here, as you can tell, to kind of lift up on the fat to give myself a little bit of better exposure and try to um, get into a different area where maybe I'm not dealing with quite as much bleeding. I'm glad on the video we saw that opportunity because I was just about to say, where's your third arm? And, uh, but that's, that's a good point. So you have two additional hands for this. One is the third arm and one assistant hand? Correct. Okay. And that's a, a larger vessel that I was trying to gently control. But to Craig's point, um, you know, it does make the kidney look funny. So as much as you can, try to avoid, um, you know, cauterizing. I, I try to use it very sparingly. And you can see there, I'm just kind of letting that bleeding go except it's annoying me enough sometimes that I think I can stop it. But when I, you realize that once you're beyond it and it's not inhibiting your visualization of what you're actually working on, sometimes you just got to let it go and keep moving. Um, I'd make the comment uh, again, similar to you. I don't need to see everything like blood being down there is okay. I just need to see exactly where I'm working. And so there's right. I mean, some comfort level with that. Exactly. I mean, I think the one thing I tell the assistant at the bedside, you know, sometimes you have a zealous assistant who's trying to suction everything, which can be problematic in a retroperitoneal case if you have a small leak with the peritoneum and you start losing pneumo that way. So I think the key is I just want that assistant, if I need suctioning, to suction where I'm working on. Um, and you can see a lot of times that bleeding really slows down once you get beyond it. It's really not that bad. And my blood loss for this case wasn't really significant. So it always looks a lot worse, I think, on the video than, um, than, than in reality, the amount of bleeding that actually is. So again, repositioning with that third arm and I'm trying to kind of get around this edge now. I think one of the key things, once you have a plane and you think you're in a decent plane, 
you also don't want to come around the back end of this and either backwall the tumor or wind up taking out more kidney than you have to. I, like, I love your left hand here, by the way. You're, you've yeah. mastered this left hand. Like All the focus has been on the scissors, right? What the scissors are doing, but but how you're spreading and bluntly retracting, like that move right there really seems to set you up well. So it, it's, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I'm left-handed. <laughs> and um, so this is where I have a big vessel and kind of what um, Brian was suggesting I'm coming in and I'm going to clip that thing because I know this is going to make my life better if I just put a hemolock clip. I'm not in the collecting system or and I don't think I was going to get into the collecting system. And I, even if that thing falls off later, it's not the end of the world. But it, it does help me get hemostasis. I did have a question for you. Are you okay if you leave that inside in the bed of your tumor at the end, or are you going to get rid of it on purpose? No, I I will leave it. I mean, I have been burned once by that with a clip migrating into the collecting system and having to get my endourology colleagues to to do a ureteroscopy to to get it out, basically. But I mean, overall, I a big fruit basket and three bottles of champagne. <laughs> You know, I clip routinely. I I got uh, I've seen a migration of a laparotide clip as a resident, but I've never had a clip. I use a five weck, so I use a okay. smaller weck, and then I just sew under them. I do a running horizontal mattress under the clip to exclude it. Okay, so it's like a fiducial marker when you're done. Shows you what to sew. This looks awesome, Alan. Thanks. But I, I set up the scissor, I mean, the instruments like a right-handed person because, you know, most of the residents are right-handed and, you know, just learn to kind of use that left hand for the blunt dissection. So, so that, that's the beast gone. And I mean, the other thing is I have decent exposure to be able to um, sew this thing up now. But I don't think we're showing, hopefully, the, the sewing up part. No, I did notice when I watched it, you are left-handed. So I, <laughs> I, that part I figured, figured out quickly. Any of the other uh, panelists have some questions or some, some comments on the video? Well, I, I will just say that I, I, it, despite some venous backflow, you have visualization of the margin. You have that visualization. And that's what I'm looking for. Um, it doesn't have to be completely dry, but... You could see good enough to make sure there's no gross positive margin. And I, I, I think that's really important compared to a traditional off clamp where you might have a lot more um, welling up of blood. I guess the other comment I'd make while things are coming in is, I think some people might be gun shy about retroperitoneal for a larger tumor. Um, you know, I commend you on doing it. Number one and number two, you, you made it look easy and, and not challenging. Um, again, I would definitely second, uh, your, your choice when retroperitoneal is the right approach It's the right approach. You have good exposure, you have good visualization posteriorly. Um, so it's a good technique. 
and to Dr. Johnson's point earlier, mentioning that the, those posterior upper pole tumors can be the hardest to get out. That's that's perfect for a retro case mm -hmm. you know, to have that in your toolbox to get a face a, a face on view. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the these upper pole tumors, you can you can do a nice job really mobilizing the upper pole and. You don't necessarily have to struggle with the liver on the right side or the spleen on the left side. Um, so I found it really kind of that's my go to for a lot of these upper pole tumors now, even if they're a little bit more anterior. Yeah, I, I love uh, everything on the video. I think it looks very uh, reasonable and similar to to what we would uh, do uh, in, in many cases. I don't see any um, comments back yet from the feed uh, and we will have time uh, as we move forward. So why don't we move on to my uh, video, which I believe is the second one. <clears throat> so let's see, what do I get to tell you guys? Uh, do I advance the slides? No, good. So this is a, uh, a more challenging partial nephrectomy I, I put in for here. So this is a 54-year-old patient, 6.2 centimeter tumor, uh, nephrometry score I graded at an eight, um, significant um, uh, comorbidities, including coronary artery disease, uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Um, for this reason, uh, I considered a partial versus a radical. Uh, you can see additional images of the tumor here. Um, I'd also say it, it doesn't look like it has a perfectly um, smooth margin uh, there inside. It doesn't look like your nice happy sphere, um, but the lower picture, the sagittal one does look, make it look a little more spherical. So it was a robotic partial. I clamped both the artery and the vein on this case. Uh, warm ischemia times 29 minutes. Uh, maybe I had more bleeding. Maybe I just record higher numbers than other people, um, but uh, hemoglobin dropped uh, a little bit, 16 to 13 and the patient went home the next day. So here's uh, the video we've got. Uh, we're starting a little bit here with the artery you can see isolated there. Um, I actually use um, two assistant hands in general and only two robotic arms. Um, that's in part because I have PGY21s uh, assisting me in the OR, my PAs, and I trust them very much. Uh, and so they, they place clamps for me and do all kinds of stuff with their two hands. Um, now on this case, based on the size, uh, again, of the tumor and the complexity, I did decide to clamp both the artery and vein, even though uh, often I will just um, uh, do artery and smaller tumors. So here's a second clamp going in. Um, I did, uh, and I will note if I placed my, the clamps myself, I wouldn't have had to wait that extra 20, 30 seconds. Um, so that is an advantage to folks who do it that way. But I think the video is gonna jump ahead a little bit uh, into the resection of the tumor now. Um, and when I first start cutting, I usually do have a little bit of cautery marked out, same as uh, Dr. Weiser on the margins. I've already used an ultrasound uh, to mark out where we're going. Um, and so you can see we're already into this resection a little bit here uh, as we go. Um, I like to do it all sharply. I don't like to use any cautery. I also think uh, very similar to what you saw in the previous video, I like to go from multiple angles. I do not like to get into a hole. I like to go wide and I like to go um, uh, left, right, 
middle. I like to um, make sure I fully mobilize the tumor before we get going. Um, and you can see this is really not an enucleation for much of it. Um, I feel like this is a similar type of thing we just saw with Dr. Weiser as well, uh, trying to really see normal kidney uh, beneath, but then not take too much. Um, I feel like this move looks pretty similar to actually what we just saw in the other video in terms of making sure that um, we're being more precise there. You can see there kind of a deliberate um, uh, cut across, uh, I would say collecting system at this point on the depth of the tumor, which we can go and we can close later. Um, at some areas you can see a nucleation like to the right there, right above the scissor, that looks pretty tight uh, on the tumor. Um, whereas in some of the remainder of it, you can see that three or four millimeters that Dr. Bayani talked about. Um, but I'd agree with uh, Sam's comments about what is what is an enucleation versus what's an enucleo resection. Um, you know, there is some enucleation in my in my uh, my specimen here, even though my goal was an enucleo resection. So again, you can see it's pretty thin uh, for some of those portions there. I feel like I have a grossly negative margin, um, but not without a lot of tissue over top of it. And now, uh, as we can see, we get across the back. And again, I, to me, I think this video looks pretty similar. I'm definitely open to comments and thoughts about why we think or what we think about this and what we've seen with Dr. Weiser's and uh, maybe from the um, panelists, we'll get some comments too, I think on these relatively similar techniques with different instrumentation. And this is trans versus retro for his. Brian, I really like the angles that you work. You know, you work the right, you work the left, like you mentioned, not working in a hole, but you just keep working that 10 o'clock angle, two o'clock angle, rounding the corner. Thought it really set you up well. Yeah, I, I love the visualization. I love the uh, assistance, uh, again, showing you, um, showing you the margin, whether it's enucleation or a formal partial or a nucleoresection, I think in all cases, you feel like you're close, but you feel like you can see that um, brownish hue of the negative margin. Um, do agree that your assistants are really phenomenal. Um, uh, I'm hoping to hire one of them if you send me their number. And uh, um, I, I, I really think it, it, it really is a um, textbook close, but negative margin. Any of the other panelists want to comment on either of the videos we've seen so far? Just look the, what are your thoughts? I think the more I've watched, you know, these videos and videos from other people, takeaways I've gotten in just doing it myself is, you know, I mean, when you first cut in, if you start getting a bleeding rather than trying to mess around with controlling it, just go somewhere else, you know, I mean, try and keep the cut margin at the bottom. So it's all draining out. And then you usually can, it seems like what Dr. Weiser was showing, I mean, the bleeding eventually kind of slows down, you know, I mean, obviously if you cut it and start a problem, but, you know, kind of just being fluid moving back and forth seems to be the most helpful thing. And I think the bigger the tumors are, um, I've started doing a lot more blunt dissection than I used to, you know, rather than just cutting everything. I think that the blunt spreading with your, I guess, left hand for most people is pretty helpful to kind of delineate the margin where you need to go. Do, um, do any of you use the tumor itself to tamponade a bleeder? Like if you're cutting on the right side, you get a sinus and it's bleeding, you just rock it, compress it, and then cut on the left side to, you know, buy yourself some time or, or how about irrigation? Do you 
have your your assistant prime the suction and do little squirts to kind of clear that off? I I tend to not irrigate. I think my my horror case that I showed you uh, at the beginning of this session is the one that's kind of got me not irrigating ever anymore because um, I'm convinced that the way you get uh, tumor cells spread from the, a left partial nephrectomy to the right oh. upper quadrant liver gutter, uh, about a gutter is irrigation. Um, it's, I don't do that, but I, I love your comment for sure. Move the tumor, block it. You know, if you're coming anterior, now come posterior, get a different approach so you can see. But Sam's comment, I think at some point was, was spot on, or maybe it was alone. Again, have your assistant put the sucker right on that bleeder uh, is probably number one. If that's not going to work, use whatever else you got. I, you know, my, my assistants tend to irrigate when they hit the wrong button on the suction, and I usually <laughs> yell at them. Um, because I don't like irrigation, but about half my videos I would play at the AUA are ruined by the irrigation. Um, and I'm glad there's not audio on them. So, uh, I'm a big no on irrigation, but I get it half the time. So Sam, I love it when you're dissecting the hilum and then they decide to prime the suction right then, you know, it, just to give you a heart attack and have to change your underwear. It's a Love stress that. test. It's yeah. not a heart attack. Yeah. It's a stress test. Yeah. Hey, we do have a question here. Does anyone use anything but a fenestrated in the left arm? I use a progress. Progress. Okay. So I, it's a little bit unfair. We're going to go apples to oranges here because it looks like Alona and I both pick, uh, you know, just one video in a straight up case. And we're going to go to Dr. Bayani's uh, videos but I will acknowledge again uh, and appreciate uh, what you're choosing to show us. And I think this will be very helpful uh, to our discussion. So thanks. Oh yeah, you're muted, Sam. Um, I, I'm just cutting around a very small uh, tumor here. Uh, I'm using a little heat to go through the capsule, curving away from the tumor as you've already seen. But what is notably absent in this case? What's notably absent is the assistant is nowhere to be found. Literally nowhere to be found. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very nicely suggesting, if you know me in the operating room, that they may want to put the sucker in. Well, actually, they are putting it in. They're putting it um, through the spleen right now. Um, and uh, uh, that's a little bit of a joke. But I'm lucky and fortunate in this case that I can still see the margin, despite the fact that my brand new assistant here is unable to actually locate um, the tumor. So, I like the bending away. You can see I use a little heat. Um, I know it's a small exophytic tumor, so I'm not that worried about it. Not curving into the tumor, but literally no counter-traction. And this is one that um, is a success because I got through it, a failure in teamwork. You're going to see more of that theme, okay? Just to warn you. So anyway, I'm sending this person to fellowship at Henry Ford, actually. So um, this assistant. So we'll fit right in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love to hear any comments on the on my on my comments, you know, um, but we'll get there. So uh, so, um, uh, you know, again, using a little heat, but I, I think you got the point here that it's um, it's just not ideal in assistance. Getting away with it, though, 
because of good ultrasound and not yeah. afraid to cut. Good ischemia too. Good ischemia. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we go to the next one? All right, good. Again, cutting away from the tumor. And here's one, it's stepwise. The assistant is a little better as you're gonna see when they get in there, okay? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know why slip went over to Firefly, but um, again, cutting around the tumor, uh, scissors pointing away. I told you I do like to use a little heat when going through the capsule. And sooner or later, the assistant's going to be in there, um, maybe sucking a little bit of, of, um, of blood. But you can already, again, tell the assistant is not engaged. And now I'm like, come on, I need you to re retract away so I can create that flap, create that trap door that you saw in um, uh, uh, Dr. Lane's uh, expert PGY-21 assistant. So a little better, helping. I'm still confident I can see the margin, but they really could help me more. And this is, again, at risk for getting a positive margin because of a lack of that counter traction. Ooh, okay. That little guy right there. Oh, a little pill action. Oh, collecting yeah. system. Yeah. Collecting system. We'll cut through the other side and it'll be fine. Um, so again, I know from the anatomy that I know from the tumor that I want to get in the collecting system using that as a marker. A little better. Now let's go to a little worse. Let's Question from the chat. Were those both on clamp or off clamp? Uh, the first was selective clamp. Second one was on clamp, little ven but no, no, no venous clamp. Okay, good. Seven centimeter exophytic tumor. Nothing is good. Nothing. Okay. Assistant is literally giving me no counter traction. I'm having some bleeding. Can't see the margin. Uh, I, this is complete failure in that teamwork that's needed to get negative margin. So um, I'm going to get lucky here and get a negative margin based on ultrasound. And I'm actually cutting away. And I assure you, I'm giving very subtle verbal cues to, for, to the assistant to express my opinion. I'll just say that of what's going on. But finally, they get in there, but it's of no help. Again, you got to see the margin. Got to see it. I don't see it bad. But what are the lessons? You saw wonderful excisions by Dr. Weiser and Dr. Lane and others. You got to see the margin. I like to clamp. I'm with Dr. Semergen. I like to clamp. I'm with it. I'm, I'm with that approach. I like to cut away from the tumor. I like the use of ultrasound. Got to have good assistant. That counter traction helps. It really does help. And identify the mass, use those landmarks, the collecting system, the sinus fat, even if you have compromises in the visualization, those cues are really important. But endophytic tumors are always the hardest. So these are suboptimal excisions. I deliberately um, wanted to show them. I, I'm looking forward to them queuing up the last video. If you want to see beyond suboptimal, like whole different level of suboptimal. Um, but the bottom line is it still comes down to the surgical principles that this panel has brought out, which is you got to see, got to retract, got to use the landmarks, got to use the ultrasound. So uh, th those are those are my um, technical comments, I guess. Um, and believe me, every single mistake that I showed there, I've made at least 10 times. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. 
I think, right, I, think uh, I think we have to give Sam credit here for uh, it takes a very confident surgeon to be able to show you know what not to do and I've seen Sam operate in live surgeries in front of hundreds of people doing very complex surgeries and can vouch he's an amazing surgeon and it, you know it takes confidence to show this so thank you Sam yeah, I and I just want to add as I as I think through when we we look at these, I remember one case where I cut straight through the tumor, um, and I had no clue. Um, I think there's another one where I just took the the layer of normal kidney off the top of the tumor, and I hadn't even got down to the tumor. And your points here are spot on, which is you need to use the preoperative imaging. You need to use your intraoperative ultrasound and you need to use all those anatomic landmarks. Um, if you don't get down to the collecting system and you know the tumor was within one millimeter or touching the collecting system, you did not get the tumor out. Like you need to get all, all the way there. Uh, and so I think your videos are really kind of illustrating again, you need all those uh, clues working together to get you to that point. Well, we'll see if they can get my last one while we carry on because it's worth seeing. It's yeah. worth if it, it, it's worth seeing. Okay, we'll get, but we can we keep going. Question here on. from the uh, for the the group, uh, and again, maybe some of those who haven't uh, spoken up in a, in a moment or two. Clamping artery versus artery and vein. So, I, well, I always clamp the artery. Sometimes I'll clamp the vein for really deep tumors. Um, but most of the time I don't, but you know, really high nephrometry one, I'm totally okay with clamping the vein. Uh, as long as you know that you got all the arteries or your clamps are good, you know, worst case scenario is clamp vein, but still have arterial inflow. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd stop clamping, um, the vein. I, I guess there may be some rare circumstances on the right for a very deep central tumor where I would consider it, but certainly not on the left. Um, I do want to veer off and make one comment on assistance. You know, so some of you guys know I start. I I went out to our joint venture hospital about two two and a half years ago and helped start the robotic program here with basically brand new PAs and um, as bedside assistants. And, you know, I, I learned this before, but learned it again that, you know, I, I will honestly say I try to minimize how much my assistant has to do and to allow them to focus on a very, very specific task. So you saw me using that third arm. I spent a lot of time exposing things so that I anticipate not um, having to have them push down or do something to manipulate the location of the kidney so that they can just focus on suctioning. Um, you know, I try to keep it as simple as possible. And even sometimes if I have a really weak person, I'll put a Raytech or a T-Lap in and I'll dab for myself, you know, to try to reduce as much of the variability as possible. So, I mean, I, I think for many people maybe on this call who don't have great robust assistance, trying to figure out how you control the variables as much as possible and that assistant is really able to focus on one task is probably helpful. 
along those lines, uh, mm-hmm. I think a timeout and a dry run can be important where you sort of pretend to go through the motions of, okay, I'm cutting the tumor out. Where, what is your suction going to do? Kind of step-by-step. Step, all right, how are you going to bring the needle in? What hand? Kind of pr- a dry run or practice swings through the whole thing can help out. That's great. Let me, I, I've done this in the AUA course that, that we taught for years, but making the point here, um, I'm a huge fan of putting a sponge in ahead of time. I'm a huge fan of putting needles in the body ahead of time. Um, huge fan of asking for the ultrasound 20 minutes before I will ever need it um, to give the room time. Oh, we dropped the ultrasound on the floor. Oh, this is not the right probe. Oh, this. I never ask for it when I need it. I'm 20 minutes ahead. Um, I put a suture in the body because then I know that the needle driver exists um, and that the needle driver is clean. Um, so my again, my thought process is the entire team. I think your guys' comments are specific towards the assistant. I think they're both relevant and you need to know your scenario. Um, in my scenario, I, I don't always get the same uh, scrub tech or the same circle nurse and things like that. So those are the things that I've been more attuned to. Um, one of the questions in the... Uh, is number of bulldogs per hyler vessel. And then again, that artery versus vein. I guess I'll just make a, a point about that, which is numeral of eight, 10 or 15 is venous control. So if your pneumoperitoneum's on, you don't need a venous clamp. And I think Dr. Bayani's point um, that if you haven't got all the arteries, your venous clamp's gonna be a worse situation. I agree with that completely. So if you don't need it, uh, don't do it. Um, and then the second is number of bulldogs. I used uh, my bad example on the positive surgical margin at the beginning where I said there was still bleeding and I put a second arterial bulldog. Um, we should acknowledge that second arterial bulldog may have helped, but it may be that I missed a second artery. Uh, and that's probably more likely. Uh, and so having high quality imaging ahead of time, reviewing your own imaging, really looking, um, using that intraoperative ultrasound to look. I mean, if you don't skeletonize your whole hilum, you can use that ultrasound on the Doppler setting uh, and see if you can find other smaller vessels in there. So there's a lot of tools at your disposal uh, to make your case as uh, successful as possible. I think if you don't skeletonize all the way around, I mean, I, I used to just do one clamp, but I found that putting two has just been that like 10% more, you know, visualization that you get from that. And I, I guess I didn't uh, think about those bulldog clamps expiring or wearing out over time, but I think just in practice, I've just routinely done two on the artery and then, you know, one on smaller things that seem to be feeding to it and then nothing on the vein. But then I also try to minimize our assistance responsibilities too. So I'm a big fan of, um, mini laps and just trying to put the kidney in the position that I want to do the case in and not having them have to like, you know, rotate the kidney around or anything with, you know, fourth arm there and then the mini lap and just trying to put it in a stable static position for the, the excision of the tumor, I think is pretty helpful just to make it easy on the assistant to know that all they got to do is get the suction in there, hold down and make it easy for me to see. So I hear that we can get the other uh, Bionic video going. So why don't we cue that up so we can see that. And until we see it, I'll just say, we have a comment from Will Johnston uh, supporting kind of everything we're saying. The more independent you can learn to be, the less your outcomes are based on others and more on you. Uh, he's got a, a, a great Vipatel reference from 
gosh, it's 17 years ago by now. But so here I am cutting out a tumor and you can see the yellow there and I have a grossly positive margin. It was an endophytic one centimeter mass just right below the hilum. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I cut wrong. I'll just cut a little extra margin. Well, look at that. There it is again. Okay. So essentially I've completely misidentified the tumor. I cut out normal parenchyma on the left and the tumor is actually what I'm cutting through now three or four times on the right. Now this is obviously, you know, it was 12, 13 years ago, but um, there's numerous errors. Number one, it's bleeding too much. Number two, misidentification on ultrasound. Number three, failure to identify the misidentification. Um, uh, no visualization now, um, gross tumor spillage. I mean, it's, 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 it's just a disaster. Well, I keep cutting and cutting and cutting, and eventually I, I come all the way around it. Um, it ended up being a very, and you can see the pneumo is out because they're sucking so much. I mean, literally everything has gone wrong on this case. Um, what started out as a little one centimeter mass below the margin. Clearly, I have another arterial info probably because it's still bleeding, even though I'm clamped. Can't see anything. Misidentification on ultrasound. Cutting into the tumor many times because I didn't recognize I cut out the wrong thing. Disaster. One centimeter mass. Curious what everybody would do. Now, I have 12-year follow-up now, but I'm curious. I'm following this person forever, but I'm curious what what everybody would do. So I got a couple of comments. One, when you're bleeding like stink, it's, I always think I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a second clamp on there. But once I'm thinking it's not like I don't have the right vessel, I'm thinking, can I put a bulldog or a Satinsky across the entire thing? Um, so if there's extra arteries, if there's extra veins, but I'm also thinking, oh God, it's going to be bleeding like stink while I'm messing around with that. Maybe we just got to go. So I've been, I've been here and you just keep going. Not, not a fun place to be. Sam, what do you think about um, when you have a completely endophytic tumor with no external cues as to where the, where the tumor is externally, and you're, you know, you're completely dependent on ultrasound. Will you consider getting an ultrasound before the surgery? And if it's not well visualized on ultrasound, then maybe you tell that patient, Hey, there's a higher chance this could be a radical if I can't see it. I've done that ever since September 17th, 2007. Okay. When this case was on the 16th. Okay. okay. So absolutely completely endophytic mass. That's small. I'm getting an ultrasound pre-op. I want to see where it is. Okay. Um, so I, I do that. I, um, you know, I, I remember that in this case, it would have helped to see what it looked like. But also back then, we didn't have robotic drop-in probes. It was a different kind of ultrasound that we have now. Now the, um, the ability to control it yourself and just skill, just you know, experience makes you better at sonography for these smaller masses. So I, I don't I think in this day and age, I would have been better at clamping. You know, we didn't have robotic bulldogs back then. It was um, you know, the Esculap one that we had probably kept for 15 years in, in our laparoscopic pan. Um, didn't have good clamp, didn't have good ultrasound, um, didn't have good experience, um, did have a positive margin. Now, I ended up completing a partial, probably should have done a radical, probably, okay? Ended up being a low-grade renal cell, 12 years out, um, still disease-free, and you're darn right, 
I'm seeing her back in March for year 13 or 14, whatever it is. Well, I again, I want to commend you as others have for showing it. I'm aware of similar cases. You say this is a bad outcome, but I know people who've left the OR not taking out the tumor at all. Uh, I know other people who've left the OR and no tumor was in the bag and things like that. So uh, again, bad things happen, but again, with increasing experience and, and these type of seminars, we're, we're sure hoping to avoid those things. So why don't we move on to Dr. Rogers' video uh, is our final video at this point. All right, is this gonna play automatically? I'll let it go. All right, so I didn't wanna do a spoiler uh, when we were talking about biopsy and the nucleoresection. Um, and this video is gonna focus a lot on the ultrasound. So we kind of showed after the ultrasound was done in many cases, you notice this is a central, it's a hyalur tumor, young patient, 2.6 centimeter, completely endophytic, hyalur mass, um, picked up uh, and actually because of a history of uh, testicular cancer, a biopsy was done clear cell renal cell carcinoma grade two. So now this is not to promote any one ultrasound probe. We have BK, we have Hitachi Aloka. It just shows that there's been an evolution to smaller probes and we have both, we like them, just have something. So the hilum has been exposed. Uh, the hilum has been dissected. We're opening up Gerota's fascia. This would, this would have worked fine. So Alan's probably like, why aren't you going retro? I totally could have gone retro here. And uh, in this case, I flipped it around. So I'm, it, it requires more mobilization. I'm gonna flip and twist the tumor and, uh, and there's the tumor there. So I'm leaving just a little bit on the tumor, trying to uh, take this tumor all the way down. I know on imaging that this is gonna go until I get to the hyalur vessels in the ureter. It's sitting right on critical structures. This up front, I know that when you cut this out, you can't cut to a deep margin that's parenchyma that can be sewn. There will be no deep margin. It will be the hyalur vessels. So by definition, this tumor has to be enucleoresected or enucleated, or there's no way to save the kidney. So there are many deep tumors that are like that, right? That you have to do a hybrid. You can start wide, but eventually you're going to have to peel a segment of that off. So this is showing, now this is what I feel is critical for hyalur tumors is this spreading motion of following the hyalur vessels on into the tumor and dissecting a sinus plane between the hilum and the, and the tumor up top. Um, I'll sometimes bring in a small cotinoid just to stuff it in there. It's sort of like a Kittner dissection. So this is the um, Hitachi Aloka, I think now Fuji drop-in ultrasound probe. It's much smaller. And you're seeing on a Tile Pro image below, I guess I could have brightened that up for you, sorry, but you go back and forth, you see tumor, slide off, no tumor. And I'm like a, a broken record in the OR, I keep going back and forth, tumor, no tumor, tumor, no tumor, you know, and try to convince myself that I know where the margins are. And, and I'll just do sort of a little dot to dot as I do it, just um, I don't want to necessarily commit to that. I may decide I'm going to cut wider or more narrow, and I don't want to mess up the capsule for sutures later on, but I'll just put little dots in. And then when I'm pretty sure of the contours, I'll connect the dots. So we're connecting the dots all the way around. There's tumor, so cystic tumor. And then I slide off. And the, you can use the width of the probe as your margin. So I don't want to buzz the probe. I don't want to break the probe, but you can slide off and use the, now look at this. You can actually flip it upside down, go in between the hilum and the tumor, 
because I want to see the sides, the corners at like five and seven. So I, I do like a probe that I can manipulate robotically at different angles so you can go tangential. And uh, as I think Sam mentioned, you can angle it back and forth. You can rock to the side to help assess the depth. Notice we were on Doppler mode there because I was assessing the vessel coming in on Doppler. So um, before we go on clamp, just a little bit more exposure of the tumor. I know I'm gonna flip this back and forth. So I wanna see the hilum on the front side as well. There's the tumor in the back. The assistant is uh, trying to help get exposure. I wanna get it right up to the hilum on both sides. Again, that sinus plane spreading in there. I'll usually spread this in intentionally until I start getting bleeding. So it's demand ischemia. And once it starts bleeding, then I'll go on clamp. So I've got a sponge in the background. We've talked about this. This is helping to position the kidney, but it's also a rescue, you know, that I can stuff on the defect if necessary. So we're using, we're going to use uh, the Scanlon Bulldogs, the robotically applied Bulldogs. Ascolaps are fine too. So, but I like being able to control. Now, in this case, since I'm right on the hyalur vessels and on the right side, I am going to clamp the vein. Watch this though. We clamp, it gets engorged because the gonadal comes off the renal vein. So I adjusted it, moved the clamp up. Now it's white, the color I like, you know, ischemia. And I'm going to work the sides initially, try to trap door this thing, get through the capsule. So right now I'm not enucleating. I'm just cutting through capsule, but I know that I'm going to get to a point where I see tumor and I have to follow the tumor. So, you know, this is, I feel like I'm kind of back in my fellowship days at the NIH where everyone had VHL and everybody got, you know, enucleated. I, I do not advocate routinely enucleating tumors, but there are cases where you have to know how to identify the plane. And like Dr. Lane showed, either course correct and get out of the plane or try to get on it, own it and ride it to stay off the vessel so you don't lose the kidney. So it takes a combination of sharp and blunt dissection getting on the plane and then spreading. This did help that I knew it was clear cell ahead of time. So I know that there's gonna be a pseudo capsule here that I can get away with it. If it was a papillary tumor, this may not work out as well. If there's a hazy border on CT, this probably doesn't work out as well. Um, so trying to get all the way around it, get it mobilized. I think upward retraction, we saw this on other videos too, leaving just enough that you can pull it up away from the uh, hyalur structures underneath. And then uh, once you see it at that point, then you can get back into the capsule and cut wider. So now this is where you could say, well, if you're enucleating, would you burn the capsule? I suppose you could if you want to. So, uh, I, usually, I don't routinely do that, but if I nucleoresect, then I may burn the cortex when I'm all done. So, so we're out, the tumor has not, the pseudocapsule has not been violated um, because of a small defect. Uh, you know, I'm, I know the focus here is not on reconstruction, so I'm not gonna spend much time on this. The idea is that we're, we're closing it and because of the nucleoresection of a hyalur tumor, this is about the only uh, parenchyma I have to sew. And then we're gonna early on clamp, I haven't closed the defect yet um, because I wanted to spend more time getting the tumor out and, you know, I, so I'm okay using up more clamp time on the resection portion. And now it's all free. We're off clamp. So you can spend as much time as you want. 
I had some inner layer sutures in there, but ready to go if it bled, it didn't bleed. So I'm just taking the inner layer sutures out. And then um, I usually don't sew with bolsters, but when you have a hyalur tumor, if I try to close this completely, you're gonna strangulate the hilum and make that tumor, you know, kidney ischemic. So I can use a sliding clip on the sides and try to tighten it up. But when I get to the middle, um, I usually will just leave that open and you can put a bolster in if you want. So the tumor is out in the bag, negative margins. It's interesting that our Italian colleagues that have been publishing on, on you know, enucleation for 15 year outcomes have actually reported margin rates lower than what we're seeing reported in wide margin resection. And maybe that's keep your enemies close, you know, your friends close, your enemies closer, you're less likely to get into it if you see it. Um, or it may just be their pathologists like them. I don't know, but, uh, uh, you know, Christmas baskets to the pathologist, who knows, but anyway, that's, uh, that's just a, a technique of how to avoid, um, a margin by staying on the margin. All right. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? My favorite thing in the entire video, uh, again, you did it trans and you rotated the whole thing. So it's a 29 year old, it's non-sticky fat, you mobilize the whole kidney. Um, and I love when you go to the complete backside and separate the tumor away from the vessels. Um, if you don't do that move, that's the move where, you know, a deep scissor cut puts you into the backside of a renal arterial branch. So uh, the moment that happened on your video, you know, I, I knew you're gonna have a great outcome. Uh, and I think that was a really important kind of teaching point showing us that. Thanks. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. I think, uh, you know, we talk about when we were doing open partials, you know, Gilvernay maneuver and really kind of identifying those structures in the hilum. And I, I think you showed that really beautifully with this video, how you uh, identified the hyalur structures that were going to be right next to that tumor and expose them. So it was great. So there's a question in the, the uh, chat that I think is relevant to something you just said on the video. Uh, so Dr. Ginsberg is talking about using uh, Doppler color flow before and after clamping to ensure ischemia. Um, you talked about just the visual cues uh, of the vein there. You want to comment, when do you put the Doppler back in? Do you never or do you do it? Yeah, so I mean, here I I just use the Doppler to get an idea of where that artery was heading in relation to the tumor. So when I'd resect, but to Dr. Ginsburg's point, you can use that to gauge how your ischemia is going to be. Let's say I had vessel loops around the artery, and you just pull on that vessel loop while you have it on Doppler mode. That simulates clamping. So if you see that internal arterial flow go away on Doppler, you know that you've got all the vessels. You can use Firefly, but that's only going to tell you surface ischemia, right? It's not going to tell you what's going on deep where you're more likely to bleed. So Doppler can help you there. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, again, the key is for me is I know other surgeons say same way every time. I don't think this operation is same way every time. You need to know all the different tricks. You need to know what the anatomy is. Uh, in your specific case. And Doppler, sometimes I absolutely need uh, because I can't quite tell, gee, do we really, you know, do we have everything here? But most of the time you probably don't need it afterwards. Uh, other folks have thoughts on uh, use of Doppler? I think that was a really nice video. Uh, 
beautiful dissection. I don't really use Doppler in that way, but I think there are a lot of visual cues. Um, you know, you get that really nice paleness of the kidney after clamping. Um, you know, it's, it's a good sign that you're not going to have too much blood flow when you're trying to cut out the tumor. Um, and then also, you know, just the common starting, if you have a hyalur tumor like that, trying to start at the key structures and referring very often to your, your pre-op imaging so that you know where things are in relation, because if you're close to the hilum, you're probably close to segmental vessels that are diving under that tumor. Um, there was a comment earlier, I think Dr. Bayani was talking about Firefly. Um, is anyone using Firefly and when and why? You know, I use it once in a while. I use it uh, sometimes to um, uh, for selective clamps, or if I do a what I call a half clamp, if you find a big branch going to the lower pole and the lower pole tumor. Um, I, I, I don't use it every case to see if I have ischemia. Now, I've regretted not using it a few times because of that, because my clamps were not maybe as positioned as I would like. But I do use it selectively to see, um, especially when I do a selective clamp. So that, that's when I use it. I'm sort of middle of the road. Um, some people use it every case. Some people use it no cases. And I use it selectively on selective clamp. Sam, you and I sound identical on that. Um, if I do a selective clamp, I love it because I'll clamp, then I'll give the green, and I'll know immediately whether my selective clamp's enough or whether I need to go back and go further away on, on my artery, get the whole thing, or just go for a bigger branch. Um, so that, that's the only time I think if you're going to clamp the whole thing, there's no need to, to put the, the green in there. Any other opinions on that? I'm, I'm selective on it. If you have a hyalur tumor with multiple branches and some of them appear to be going into the tumor and you want to just take that branch, it's really nice when you use firefly and you see the dark area corresponding to the tumor and you know, you can get away with just putting a clip and sacrificing the vessel and it. You know, that's very satisfying. I don't routinely do selective clamp. I just feel like if you can shut the kidney down and get it all out in a short ischemia time, you know, why go through all the hassle? So I use it less than I used to. So we're down to our last few minutes. Anyone have some takeaways or uh, last points that haven't gotten men mentioned yet? I guess I just asked the panel, I, I don't routinely do any off clamp. I've done a couple of times where there's been a primary tumor and then a small little ditzel thing next to it. And I'll do the big one, take the clamp off and then try and do the smaller one off. But I found that it's really difficult to kind of close the deeper layer. At least seems like you're sewing sponge cake back together. I mean, the parenchyma is not so hard, but I don't know if that's the experience that everyone else has had as well or and then if I had, if it's really bad, I'll just go back and put the clamp on to close everything up. It just, that's been a, aside from the bleeding, a really unsatisfying part of the, you know, doing an off clamp procedure. My comment for the um, uh, not high volume person is I would be very careful about off clamp. I think, you know, losing a liter of blood, getting a positive margin, um, being out of control, you just, you don't want to be there. And it's the rare case that it really matters um, that your ischemia is really going to hurt the patient. If there's an elective partial nephrectomy, uh, you know, you're going to do a lot more damage with either of those other things. I would just clamp and, and not mess with it. 
Dr. Rogers brought this up, but also the use of early unclamping when possible. Uh, you can see if there's any vessels that are open, especially in something that's that's central, uh, you know, and more so in, in cases that you don't have to flip the kidney and you have easy access to the hilum in case you flash it and there's there's bleeding at that time. You know, I, I don't, I don't do, well, I do some off clamp and when I do it, I regret it sometimes. Okay. I regret it more, more commonly than I like it. Um, uh, but I still continue to do it. So that tells you, uh, the, um, the interest is still there, uh, from me, but I don't like to do it. Um, as far as early unclamping, I, I like early unclamping, but I still, um, I still, do put one or two parenchymal sutures to close part of it before I early unclamp. So for me, it's a pseudo early unclamp, but uh, uh, I, I, I like to joke with Craig and Jihad and Stifelman that, you know, their early unclamp at 10 minutes is my completion renorphy at 10 minutes. So, I mean, come on. Sam, we should be on these panels more often. I think you and I can can fight those guys off. Yeah, I, I think my speed gets gets me through it. I don't like putting stitches in off clamp. Um, they're a higher risk to tear. They're a higher risk for all those things. Uh, but again, if if by some stretch, for some reason, I'm at 20 minutes with my resection because it's a T3 tumor or it's a seven centimeter tumor, then I'll, I'll unclamp. But yeah, usually trying to just be done by then. Yeah, you know, Brian, the joke that I usually tell the stifleman at this point is 20 minutes after clamping, I'm in recovery room. Yeah. That's that a joke. Right. Come on. That's a joke. You got to give me a little credit on that. No, I think that sounds good to me. So, well, other comments. Let's see. We got Dr. Johnson, Dr. Submergent, Dr. Weiser. You have some final thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, the the question of, of clamp time versus margin, I, I would say when I've looked at my data, you know, my, my margin rate tends to, I mean, you guys know, I mean, is, is probably pretty good, but I think I've sacrificed clamp time for that. You know, I think the, the it, it's often the cutting out part is not the difficult uh, the time sinking portion of the procedure, right? It, it's the reconstruction afterwards. So if you're going to go big or go home, right, and you're going to get deeper, that means you have more work to do after the tumor comes out to put the thing back together. So, and some of us are, you guys are clearly faster at putting things back together than I am. So commend you. Yeah, but, but again, alone, I think you've made the point very well. Uh, which is if I'm more of an enucleator and I'm getting closer and I'm not opening up those vessels, I have less reconstruction I have to do later versus you're deliberately going deeper. So I, I love the trade-offs as you're talking about it. And certainly within music notes, we're seeing it that nobody's best at everything. Uh, it's a trade-off. Uh, and know, so and, again, I, and, I just appreciate this group and, and the opportunity to do this. You know, I'll never sacrifice clamp time for not seeing the margin and making sure I do a good reconstruction. I'd rather clamp longer, have a negative margin, a nice sealed kidney, and every every day I'd rather clamp longer and get those two outcomes. Yeah, I'm gonna. Um, there's one last in the chat here from Will again. Johnson making a good point. There's a risk uh, to dissecting out and clamping the artery. Understanding when and when not to clamp may minimize risk, especially for exophytic tumors. 
uh, agreed. Again, I think we've been making the point throughout, think about each individual case and, and what's the best thing in the scenario. So um, I think uh, with that, we'll conclude. I just wanna, again, thank Sam Bayani especially uh, for being our uh, visiting professor and our uh, and uh, sharing specifically the cases as you did and thank all the panelists. Uh, I hope this was a benefit uh, to all the urologists involved. I'll, I'll also note again, this wasn't just uh, in-house, this had a lot of outdoor music. I think we've had a lot of international participants as well. So welcome and I'm so glad you joined us. So with that, wish you a, a great evening and uh, we will stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye-bye.